Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to all of you at our North site. We're glad you're with us. Years before the moment we're about to talk about, Jesus was with his closest friends. And as he was sitting with them in close proximity, years before his death, years before they understood, he uttered these very cryptic, concerning words. He said in Luke 12, 11, these words, when you are brought before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourself or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time, in that moment, what you, what you should say. It's now years later. Jesus himself, of course, had been executed, physically risen from the dead, met with his community for 40 days, proved that he was alive, promised them the Spirit. They prayed for the Spirit. The Spirit came upon the church. The church was born. Thousands have come to Christ, and now we come to this moment. It didn't begin, by the way, with a fight. It didn't begin with a dispute or violence or a vote or a protest. It actually began in an unusual place. The conversation began and the encounter began when someone had mercy on someone else, when someone healed someone else, when God demonstrated compassion. Let's begin where we did last week, where Pastor Lori was preaching. There was a beggar, do you remember? Over 40 years old, sitting outside of God's temple, and his experience was and is like millions before and after him who have his condition. And in that culture, his life would have been marked by nothingness. Nothing but the grind of nothingness, day after day, of humiliating rejection. No one looking him in the eyes. No one acknowledging his presence. Sometimes throwing money at him, not giving it to him. And not only that, no one thinking of this man as valued. Now this man, a Jew, spent his life begging in God's temple And over that lifetime, he would have seen millions and millions of pilgrims over the years coming to worship and meet the living God. And for him, it was just another normal day. Another two religious people walking by at three o'clock in the afternoon for, for afternoon prayers. Money? Can I have some money, he says. But the strangers do something strange. They actually stop, and they don't just stop, they look down, and they don't just look down, they look into his eyes, they look actually into him, his deep, hollow, dead before your dead eyes, and suddenly, as he puts his hand out to receive money, this man who later he will know called Peter said these words in Acts 3.6, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I do give you, so now in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who's from Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, I'm sure the man was shocked, why are you touching me? He helped him up. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He began to jump to his feet, and he began to walk. Now remember, this man had been crippled since birth. He is 40 plus years old. He has never walked in his life. And then, of course, what did he do? He followed them into the temple courts, walking and jumping. Wouldn't you be jumping? I'd be jumping. And he begins to praise God. Now, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him because most people at this moment came every day. Business shut down in Jerusalem for afternoon prayers. They saw this man who they knew for these 40 plus years who sat begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Can you hear his thoughts? 
I, not, I thought I would never walk. I thought I would never have dignity. I thought people did not care about me. I actually didn't think that God himself cared. I mean, you think about it. I have sat my whole life in God's house. Did God ever hear one of my prayers? But no. Beggar, cripple, dirty, lazy, unclean, worthless, garbage, untouchable. See, you need to understand the theology of the day. If you are born with this condition or other conditions in the Jewish mindset in that moment, they immediately presumed that you or your parents or someone in your family had sinned. And so your deformity was a living sign of God's judgment on your life. And so a man who is born with deformity, who is under God's judgment, is sitting in God's temple, surrounded by religious people, and in one second, he thought God did not hear him, God heard him. And in that one second, he moved from darkness to light, spiritually, physically, emotionally, life is now different. Dignity and love and desperation have now been met in the name of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. Finally. His life gets to reflect the gate he has sat in his whole life. He now is beautiful too. I bet you he broke out and started dancing. Public displays of gratitude in that culture were profoundly rare, just like they are in ours. But most of us sitting here, most of you watching online, listening at the North Side, have never been so humiliated and so desperate to notice heaven meeting us to the point where we just don't care what people think anymore. Because God did something for me. I can walk. Can you imagine? I'm sure he yelled, I can walk. I can walk. I cannot believe I'm walking. Running around the temple like a little four-year-old boy. Remember, like Lori preached last week, miracles are not about miracles. Healings and deliverances are not about healings and deliverances. They are given by God to open the door so you can meet the deliverer and healer himself. It prepares the crowd for the gospel that is actually in the name of the person healing. So now Peter turns, remember last week, he turns to that crowd in shock and amazement. He begins to preach just like he did in Acts chapter 2, and his message is actually quite offensive. It is full of bad news and then good news. He paints the full picture. He puts all the cards on the table, and he points to the man, and he points back to the crowd. And remember what Lori read last week, Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life. How to influence people? No, not so much. You killed the author of life, but God has raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this, and by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has now been made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has now completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites, my fellow Hebrews, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets in the Old Testament, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent. Repent then and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come from the Lord and that he might send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He says the exact same thing he said in chapter 2 
And he continues to repeat it. Jesus' life and Jesus' coming to earth and Jesus' death was God the Father's plan all along. Oh, yes, the Romans and some of our Jewish leaders, and he points the finger, and many of you got Jesus killed. Oh, yes, you and others said he was guilty of treason with Caesar or blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God and could forgive sins. And, oh, you thought you were in charge. No, no, God's plan was all the time enacted and you all got outplayed. See, this is how we get out of the mess of our own making. He says you need to repent. You need to turn truly to the God that you think you already know. Let me say what I did a few weeks ago. Anxiety is when you know something is wrong, but you don't know what is wrong. Spiritual anxiety is felt by every human being on earth. We all know that something's wrong in our family. We see it in the news. We see it how we treat each other. We know something is wrong. But spiritual guilt is when you realize the source of the anxiety we all have, that we actually are the ones complicit who have made things wrong. It is not just, I feel something's wrong. It is acknowledging personal responsibility. And Peter says right in the middle of the temple to a very powerful audience, all of us must repent. All of us must admit. All of us must declare, I have sinned. I'm guilty. I need help. I need someone to intervene to save me. And I need, here's the summary, I need Jesus to deal with my sin spiritually like Jesus dealt with this man's experience physically. Well, the God moment is nothing but a God moment. The extraordinary has happened. A man is healed in the middle of God's health and everyone knew his condition. No smoke and mirrors. Now, why wouldn't everyone be happy? Why wouldn't everyone celebrate this? Well, because God's extraordinary moves threaten theology. God, when he shows up in great power, threatens the status quo. God threatens the long-established, those places where God had moved years ago in history, but those moves now had become enshrined into tradition and institution. The truth throughout the scriptures and the truth throughout church history is this. Every single time God brings new refreshing, a new move of God, many people, even some of his own people, will not welcome him. His work, his will, his love are not seen as what they really are. So Peter and John, they've gone up to afternoon prayers with thousands of others. Remember, we'd learned this a few weeks ago. Acts 2, 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This is what's happening thousands upon Jews shut down their shops they go to afternoon prayers thousands now three to five thousand are followers of Jesus surrounded by thousands of more who are not followers of Jesus and in the middle of this Jewish mixed crowd heaven breaks out Peter preaches awe spreads the crowd gets bigger a man is dancing because he can't believe that he got healed two hours pass and then it happens Acts 4.1 well the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They interrupt the sermon. The police show up. And they show up with a group called the Sadducees. Now we're going to do some history work today because it matters. The Sadducees were a mix of priests and the aristocracy. They ruled from a time called the Hismonian times. And here's what the Sadducees believed. Because when you understand what you, they believe, you'll understand the scandal of what's happening. They fundamentally rejected the idea of resurrection. Sadducees did not believe that anyone at the end of time, let alone now, would ever physically raise from the dead. Not only that, they only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All the other Old Testament books were not of God, only the first five, Moses's. 
And not only that, here's something most of you don't know if you've grown up at church. They actually believed they were living in the time of the Messiah, and it was their job and responsibility to defend that time, no matter the cost, including using the Romans. And so you have the police show up, the, right? They're there. And now you have the Sadducees. Do you see the coming conflict? Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching people and proclaiming what? That Jesus had risen from the dead. Problem one. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail. Hey, why not? Until the next day. Many who heard the message believed. The number of men who believed grew now to about 5,000. Now, the early Christians are proclaiming that Jesus physically rose from the dead just weeks and months earlier. They're now healing in his name, proclaiming him as the only way to the Father, saying and implying he's God in flesh, and he's the only one that can reestablish contact between Yahweh, a holy God, and a broken humanity. And here's what Peter's saying. This healing of this 40-plus-year-old man proves that Jesus is risen from the dead because when we use Jesus' name, it actually worked. This is positive possession. God God is truly living among his people. So many people are coming, and many people are believing despite the leaders of that day, and the leaders of that day are in God's house trying to stomp out God's own work in his own place. Think about that. And it says that within these four chapters, the church is now at 5,000. Now that's men. So if you counted everyone, the church is now grown from 150, probably to 10 to 15,000 within weeks. This is the next moment, though. Peter and John are thrown in jail to sober up overnight. And not only that, they're about to face somebody. They're about to face the Sanhedrin. This is the exact same group that Jesus, weeks earlier, had to face at his trials. The Sanhedrin, made up of the priest and his family, the priest class, the scholars, the greatest minds of Jewish law and faith and history. And by the way, by Roman permission, the Sanhedrin had jurisdiction over every Jew on earth, no matter where they lived. It's like Israel's parliament, Supreme Court, and their Jewish version of the Vatican all rolled into one. That's the Sanhedrin. So they're in jail for healing someone. And the next day arrives. It says that the rulers, in verse 5, and the elders and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Now, this is the whole show. Don't get bored. Listen. The rulers of the Sadducees and the aristocracy, and then you actually have this other group that shows up. You have the elders. They're the, chief pre, they're the chiefs of the families. If you come from a British background, they're sort of like landed gentry. They're the real aristocracy. They're the head fathers of the family, the patriarchs. And so you have the Sadducees, and you have these great men of, of money and intellect and land, and then you have this other group, these scholars. Now, you need to understand who they are, because you're about to see how this all unfolds. These are the law, lawyers and the, the theologians. They're called, and many of you know this word, the Pharisees. Now, why does this matter? Well, the Pharisees actually thought the Sadducees had everything wrong and were compromised. Huh. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees absolutely believed in the resurrection and believed every human being at the end of time would be raised from the dead. That's, by the way, why Jesus couldn't have raised from the dead because it was supposed to happen all at once in the end. They believed in the whole Old Testament and thought the Sadducees had missed all the great prophets and were wrong on that, and they absolutely rejected the idea the Messiah had come. They were still praying that the Messiah would come. So into that little experience, Peter and John are dragged before this court, but it gets even worse. Verse 6, if you can read it, Annas, the high priest, was there, and oh, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others in the high priest family are like, oh, so much history, blah, blah, what does it matter? Oh, it matters. 
because Annas was the high priest from 6 to 14 AD, removed by the Romans, and they gave his post to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Anyone know who Caiaphas is? Oh, right. Caiaphas is the high priest that condemned Jesus and set Jesus up, and Annas was right beside him when he did it. So these are actually the exact leaders that took Jesus out months earlier. So you've got all the best lawyers and all the best politicians and all the best theologians and all the people who've got money sitting in a room in God's temple. And these are the guys that took out Jesus and got him killed and used the Romans. And this is a tense, epic moment. And here is Peter and John. Let me remind you, Peter is a grade two educated fisherman from the worst part of his country with the wrong accent. And so now he is standing before this court. And so is John. And it says that Peter and John were brought before them the next day after a night in jail. How fun is that? And this is what they ask him. By what power and what name did you do this? What is the source and what is the plug? Who is the person you're standing in for? Like Lori preached last last week, whose spiritual credit card are you using? Well, we don't dispute this has happened. The guy is dancing. We can't argue this. We knew him. But this is evil, and this is false, and this is dangerous. We've had this circus before. We took out your leader, because he claimed things. Do you want the same fate? Come play with us, and let's see what happens. The words would have hung in the air. Can you imagine? But suddenly, something else happened. In the middle of that moment, in that air, in that environment, suddenly, the Holy Spirit chose to fill the temple again like he used to. In that moment, the comforter and counselor and advocate and spirit of truth, the spirit of life, the intercessor and the great witness now fills his servants again. And this is what happens, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and we're being asked how he was healed, oh, then you know this. You and all Jews, every person who's in our movement, it is by the name of Jesus, who is Christ, is Messiah. And just so you're not getting confused, because half the population is called Jesus, it's Jesus the Messiah, and he comes from Nazareth. Anyone? And then he says, whom, can you imagine? You crucified. But God raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. Peter looks right in the face of Annas and Caiaphas and points his finger and he says, you are the one who did this. You and this whole assembly gathered at this moment, you have done this. Now, if you know your gospels, it's really wild. When Jesus was handed over to Pilate, Pilate had an interaction with Jesus. And Jesus says this about Caiaphas. In John 19, 11, he said, first of all, to Pilate, you would have no power over me, Pilate, if it was not given to you from above. That in itself is a whole other sermon. That's amazing. And then he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you, Caiaphas, is guilty even of a greater sin. So he says, you, Peter says, and you, and you, all of you, oh, you got Jesus killed, but God the Father, to whom this whole temple is dedicated, and to whom you as leaders think you represent, this is actually the truth. That God, the only God, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Him has raised Jesus from the dead, and our healing of this man through Jesus' name proves that Jesus is risen from the dead, because if we used his name and it did not work, it would not be true, but it has worked. So this cripple and this beggar 
could have not be healed unless this is true. And then Peter does something that is just so crazy, it has to be from the Spirit. Jesus, he says in verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone of the whole house. To an orthodox religious Jew, let alone a theologian, let alone a politician, this is like massive and scandal and jaw-dropping and just like it's way out of bounds. Peter quotes Psalm 118.22 and says that Jesus, number one, not Israel is the cornerstone and the capstone, and Jesus is the true foundation of the house of Israel, and you've rejected him and you've missed him. But every scholar listening would know Psalm 118. They'd know verse 22 and the next verse. Let me read it. The stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You builders, Peter says, you rulers of us, we the Jewish people, you did not accept or acknowledge or see or understand that Jesus is the Messiah. You Sadducees, you're wrong. You're not living in the Messianic age. It is not your right to defend. You do not own God's kingdom or a plan. And oh, by the way, the resurrection is true. The rest of the Old Testament has authority and your whole theology is wrong. And while Peter is literally uttering this, he turns to the Pharisees and says, and all of you, by the way, you're right on resurrection, but you missed the most important one, and you actually got the one you're waiting for condemned. Stop waiting for him. He's already come. Stop looking. Jesus is the foundation of our people. And by the way, if you're wondering, God did this. It was his plan all along. You think you have the last say. You, you think that you only know the true living God in this temple, but you've missed the greatest move of God in history. You've rejected the one only weeks ago. From him alone and him alone comes salvation and shalom and life. Jesus of Nazareth is the savior of the world. And then he says this verse. Salvation is found in nobody else, for there is no other name under heaven given to all of humanity, not just Jews, to which we must be saved. You, you pastors, and you theologians, and you scholars, and you brilliant, you know the Torah and the prophets, and, and here's the scandal that we miss when we read this today. God's title and name was Savior, and Peter stands up and says, no, no, that's Jesus' job description and role. Peter says and proclaims and says, Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only one that has dealt with our sin because he's the only one who was without sin. He's the only one who's overcome death because he actually went to that place and came back and told us what it was like. He's the only one that has the power and ability and the holiness and love to deal with our rescue, our inability, and our selfish inclinations and our bad theology. He's the only one who overcomes all of our enemies. The good news Peter declares before this religious court is found in Jesus from Nazareth alone and not just for Jews, all people, all backgrounds, all skin colors, doesn't matter. There is only one way to heaven and it's for everyone and it's for the earth and it's for the globe and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And you leaders, here's the implication, you leaders must bow down to him because in his name we heal. He is raised to life and he truly is your God whether you like it or not. Well, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled. That's the Canadian way of saying something in a minute. Ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note these men had been with Jesus. When I was studying this week, I found out the word ordinary means illiterate. 
Not only illiterate, it means uneducated, not theologically trained, not proficient in any formal way, amateur, professionally unqualified. But what I really laughed about this week, the word ordinary in Greek is where we get our word idiot from. And so idiots come before the court. Right? Those people. Can you imagine what the leaders were thinking? Are you joking me with this? I thought we bumped off Jesus and this would all end, but now it's not just Jesus, but now thousands of him like him, and, and Jesus is like someone we had never dealt with, and now these guys are acting just like him, and now we can't dispute this because this man is healed right there. Verse 14, since they could see the man had been healed standing there, they could say, well, nothing, yeah. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin so they could confer together. This is called politics, by the way, and PR. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. Notice, unlike modern skeptics that so many of us tend to be, these men of note and influence and science and theology don't disbelieve the sign. It is what it is. And notice, they don't discredit the apostles' message, by the way. This is what they should have done if they could by presenting evidence against Jesus' resurrection. As we found out at Easter last year in our Smoke and Mirror series, with all their religious power, all their connection to the Romans, to all their spies and all the ordinary people, if they could just produce evidence in a body, the body of Jesus, the movement would be dead. But they couldn't find Jesus' body for a reason because he rose from the dead. All they needed to do is do that, but they couldn't. And so now they have a bigger problem because they can't produce the body of Jesus. They can't produce evidence against the eyewitnesses' account. And now there's a man in the middle of the temple healed in the name of Jesus, the person they thought was still dead and now is alive. So what to do? See, Peter and John have even become popular heroes. I mean, who wouldn't be celebrating a guy who was 40-plus years old getting healed and running around? I mean, they've broken no laws. And this religious body that's conferring, trying to work this out, had condemned the very person who now they're using his name to heal people in. So they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, okay, so which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or him? Wow. You be the judges, since that's what you think you are. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Oh, since we're in God's presence, here's the implication of Peter. Since we are in God's presence, in God's own house, should we obey you or God? Oh, we think, and we know what you think, that you're the human counsel ordained by God, and you alone speak for God, and we, you all think that you're the only voice of God, but you're not, and, and you're not anymore. Why? Because you have made your, you have made your voice mute. You've given up your authority and power because you rejected the one God sent. You rejected Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the one who's seated at the right hand of God, God in flesh. Jesus is the ultimate express of our expression of our Jewish faith. He's the fulfillment of not just the first five books, but the whole Old Testament. And we will not and we cannot help ourselves. We have seen him. We have heard him. We've walked with him. He is alive. We've experienced him. We are now filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ. We will not stop talking about Jesus who comes from Nazareth. Well, after further threats, they let them go, and they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And then this little note, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now, I just want to do this. I am 41, ancient to some, young to others. But I want you to imagine this. Like it's not, I'm 41. Imagine knowing me my whole life 
in a wheelchair. And never being able to walk out of the womb. And then someone walks up to me, and you've known me, and they say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up. And I do. You would be like dumbfounded, to use an old English word, befuddled. And this is the power of why God sovereignly did this. Remember, Jesus walked by this man his whole ministry. Because God ordained this moment because the world needed to know who the true healer was after he was risen from the dead. This is nothing but shock and awe. Now the question we always need to ask as we're going through the Gospels and going through the Scriptures is, well, what does it mean? But deeper than that, is something, is Jesus trying to tell our church something in this season? And the answer is yes. Number one, I want to point out, do you see the power of Peter and John? Do you see the confidence they had in the gospel? It's what Paul would write years later, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first to Jews, then non-Jews. I'm not ashamed, I'm proud of, I have confidence in the message that I carry. See, John and Peter and Paul know our human tendency towards being embarrassed or wanting to deny or letting fear be stronger even though we know it's true. And he says, no, 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 don't you cry, don't you back down. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be reluctant. Don't be mortified. Do not be humiliated into silence or into compromise. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Now, here's this is critical for us. Power of God is where we get our modern word dynamite from. This is literally saying that the gospel, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and his atoning sacrifice has its own power source. So many of us are afraid to share the gospel because we don't have confidence in the gospel. But let me say to you this morning, you don't need to make the gospel strong. It already is strong. It's eternally from God. It's not on your shoulders to make it good or make it right or make it powerful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in itself full power. And we are being saved, the gospel says, and we will be saved, and we are being saved in the future. And and this is the critical thing we need to embrace. This is what Jesus is saying to C4 today. There is not a message in this world that is, there's not one religious idea or political view or clinical diagnosis, one job. There's nothing you can buy or vote for. There is nothing in this world that brings freedom like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, like Peter says, like John says, and oh, by the way, it's not just for Jewish people who are Orthodox people searching after Yahweh. It is for the whole world. Every person, every skin color, every background, because God wants the nations to come back to the maker and get to know him again. So I want to say to you first and foremost, no shame in this church about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus did come and he is God and he died in our place and we are sinners and we are enemies of God and we are under the wrath of God and Jesus took the penalty and he rose from the dead and if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And the world may hate the gospel, but let me tell you, it is the power of God for those who are being saved. And we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel at all. Here's the second thing. Notice what marks Peter and John. Boldness and courage. Now, a lot of you, because I dialogue with a lot of you, say, well, John, I'm not that type of personality. 
I'm not like you, big and bold. Stop. Everyone stop for a moment. Where did the boldness and courage come from? A, a, a disc profile? Are you joking me? No. It, remember, Peter filled with what? The Holy Spirit. This is the critical thing that God is trying to speak into our church at this critical time. There is a move of God among us to step out in evangelism in a way we've not seen before. But we've got to get this right. It's not by your bootstraps or having right words or having all the curriculum. No, no, no. God took, remember, idiots, filled them with his spirit, befuddled the greatest theological and scientific minds of the day, and people en masse got saved. This is the thing that we, you can clap, that's good, but hear this, we need to understand that the power of God is found in the gospel and Jesus didn't leave us alone. He gives us his spirit, so when we're afraid to speak and we don't know what to say, we say, Holy Spirit, I'm afraid, broken, come get me, and he will. The Spirit of God is given to us, and the question that is, we are now wrestling with as a church is this, which fear is going to win? The fear of God or the fear of people? See, Peter, where's Peter? This is the guy who walked on water and drowned almost. This is the guy who actually, while Jesus was about to be crucified, denied him how many times? Three. Actually, at the end, cusses him out. I don't effing know him. That's what it reads like in the scripture. No, under, I'm not doing this for exaggeration. He curses Jesus. Where's that Peter? Gone. Because the spirit of God has given him boldness and courage. He's seen the resurrection and now he's saying, and he does not care anymore. Oh, I want you to know the good loving Jesus I have met. Why? Because he restored me and he can restore you too. You've got to understand the power and the sin and the blasphemy of Peter to see the profound moment that's happening in this place when the Spirit of God takes him over. You know, it was H.G. Wells who said the trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbor sound louder in their ears than the voice of God. It's interesting, when reflecting on John Knox once said, he's the founder of the Scottish Reformation who preached to Mary, Queen of Scots and others. He feared God so much he feared no face of any man. Roy Clements once wrote, testimony is telling people what Jesus has done for me in my personal life, but evangelism is telling people what Jesus has done in the world and in history. Why am I bringing this up? Here's why. Because God is inviting us to have confidence in the gospel because it's true. God is requesting this church ask for a courage and a boldness that far surpasses all of our broken histories to speak the gospel. But here's where we've fallen down. This. Many of us have told our testimonies. Many of us have not evangelized. We've shared with our neighbors and friends what Jesus has done for us. We haven't turned around and said, he's done it for you too. You need to accept him also. We are being invited to ask for a boldness and courage beyond personality. Now, let me make this very clear. I'm not saying everyone's going knocking on doors. Whether you bring somebody to Alpha, you're sharing your own story, however it works out, that's not the point. The point is, There is a move of God in evangelism when we actually understand it's his move and not ours. Here's the other thing that I need to say, and it's critical. Suffering will accompany the good news. I was preaching out west in Vancouver to like 800 church planters from across Canada. 
I'd finished my whole message. I was really excited about it. It seemed right. I'd prayed about it. But I kept hearing this one thing I didn't want to include. <laughs> I just finished preaching through First Peter with all of us. And as I was sitting and wrestling through, the Spirit said to me, you have to remind these leaders of this. And it was this, that when we step out for God, we preach the good news in humility and kindness, not in being arrogant, we will suffer. And everything in my, and I'm speaking about my, my white, upper middle class existence, fights against suffering 100%. But what did Jesus say? When, not if you're pulled in front of people. What did Paul say to his young apprentice, Timothy? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. What did Jesus say to his own followers in John fifteen twenty? A servant is not greater than their master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Jesus is inviting us to examine if we are actually ashamed of the gospel. Jesus is inviting a whole group of us to actually ask for a power source that we all have, because we all have the Spirit if you're a Christian, but for courage and boldness in sharing the good news in a way we've never had. But I think here's the real moment. Jesus is ebbing very close to many of us, because most of our church is middle class and up, and saying, comfort does not equate gospel sharing. Jesus is inviting us to suffer for the gospel. We are not greater than our master. If our symbol is a cross, we're not greater than our master. Let me say this again. What wins? Fear of being rejected by your family and friends or their eternal life? Our movement is based when people stand in another's power and even understand that the moments of suffering are the best times to share the good news of Jesus. This is not a rebuke. I'm not wagging my finger. Trust me, they're all this way. But I'm saying to all of us, we pray for revival. We're seeing things we've never seen, never. But now we're coming to the point where, as one person gave me an image one day, do you remember old steam pots? What do you call them? Steam pots, crock pots? There's all this steam building up and more and more is happening supernaturally here, but it can't stay in the building. It has to pop off and go out. So we're going to take a moment, and I think we as Christians, I'm going to address some of you who aren't Christians in a second, but we as Christians, can we take a moment and wrestle with this? Just take, just take silence for a second. All of you in the north, everyone listening online. So number one, Holy Spirit, if any one of us think that the, the gospel is inept or doesn't have power, would you show us that belief in us and begin to undo that in us? We're all going to admit before you, Lord, we're scared about sharing our faith in different ways. There's few of us that aren't, but most of us are. Whether it's inviting a friend to church or Alpha or sharing, like, we need the power of God in this church to share the good news. So we're asking for the same courage and boldness that Peter and John had. And here's the real prayer. And I'll say it before you say it. 
I am willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us um, actually come to that place? are our prayers, Lord. As the band comes up, I just want to end with one last thing. I know it's a lot of conversation in our connect groups this week about this. There are some of you here today who um, you're here, you're online, you're at the other site, and actually you're not a Christian. Or you're a Christian in name only, or you're from another faith or no faith. And can I just speak to you personally? This is just really important. You know, Jesus declared about himself that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to God except through him. Peter stood up and said, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given uh, under heaven, given to all of us, which we can be saved by. And let me just say what I've already said. Jesus is the only one who's dealt with our sin because he's the only one who was born without sin. He's the only one who's overcome death because he's the only one who actually went there and came back and told us. He's the only one that has power and the ability and the holiness and love to rescue us from ourselves. Our immorality, maybe your life is marked by lots of immorality and darkness, or maybe you're the most religious person on the planet. And notice what Peter and John say. They say to the most religious, educated people on the planet, you're lost too. He's the only one who's overcome death. And this is the good news. But if that's not enough, there's more. God doesn't make you earn your own rescue. The good news is God doesn't leave you broken. God doesn't walk away, though we walked away from him. The good news that is proclaimed by us as Christians is that Jesus came and lived a life you couldn't live, died a death you deserve, and rose to rescue you. And it's a gift. There was a debate one day in a university, true story, about the uniqueness of Christianity. And during this conference, these scholars were arguing and they said, well, Christianity is unique because, you know, God became a man. Sam said, no, other religions talk about that. And say, well, no, it's, it's the resurrection. And they said, no, other people believe at the end of time we'll be raised from the dead. Back and forth, and the debate grew heated. This is for you again who's seeking. C.S. Lewis, that great children's novelist and defender of the Christian faith, former militant atheist, walked in the room, sat down in all of his Britishness and said these words, what's all the rumpus about? I love that. And they said, well, we're debating what makes Christianity unique. And he left and he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Paul wrote these words. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God and it's not by works. So no one can have pride or boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are rescued by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. Grace alone, trust alone, faith alone, through the person and work of Jesus alone. If you are a person who has never encountered the living God through Jesus, Peter and John's message is for you today. You say, oh no, it's not. No, you're, you're, you're here to hear this. What must you do? You must confess. You need to confess Jesus is Lord, and you need to confess your sin. You need to repent. You need to turn and say, I will not trust in my religion or trust in myself or all my darkness. I turn to Christ and put faith in him. 
And so church, at this moment, I ask you to do this. Would you pray, please? Because someone right now might pass from death to life. So pray. And if this is you, if you've never accepted the good news of our faith, would you do it now by saying these words? Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. And I need rescue. I believe that you actually lived. I believe you physically died and physically rose from the dead. And I believe you are who you claim to be. I turn from my life that I've had so far and I turn to Jesus now, to you. And I put my faith, my trust in your work to cover my sin and make me new. Come have your way with me. Be my king, be my Lord, be my savior. I pray this for the first time in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, please tell someone here who you came with. If you're online, reach out to us. We're just going to take a moment now uh, to end uh, in communion. And I think it's very apropos we end here. Don't you? So today we're going to gather as Christians. And remember what I taught a few weeks ago about communion? This is the place of remembrance. This is the place of covenant. This is the place of forgiveness. This is the place of Eucharist, Thanksgiving. This is, this is an amazing moment. And it's about to be passed, so ushers, you can get ready. But as this is passed to you today, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to it. If you're not a Christian, please don't take it. You've not said yes to the one it represents. If you're a Christian in rebellion, not struggling, but in rebellion, the scripture says don't take it until you're ready to submit again. But as we do this together, could we all ask, as we take communion, be thankful to, for what Jesus did, but ask for the Spirit of Jesus to help us in sharing his story with others? So, Lord Jesus, would you bless these elements? They're only juice and they're only pieces of bread, but we know you meet us every time we gather at this table. So as we sing and as we respond, work this out embolden us with the power that's not our own. Remind us of our forgiveness. Speak to us, Jesus, as these elements pass to us. Convict us of sin. Remind us of our forgiveness. Break the power of the evil one among us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who was sent by the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.